0: Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, transformative principal and author of the book, School X, how to redesign your school for the people right in front of you. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education.
1: Greetings, everybody. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, raising cyber-ethical kids, and cyber traps for expecting moms and dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital
0: devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, hacking. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. This is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics. We are proud to announce our inaugural mission partner, Buoyancy Digital, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, reach out to scott at buoyancydigital.com or at scottrmedia on LinkedIn.
1: Hey there, Jethro.
0: Hello. I'm going to save that recording for all of our intros because that one I think was our best one.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I love the spontaneity and the occasional flub up. It makes it real, Jethro. So anyway, this one is my opportunity to introduce our guest, Uh, Back when I wrote Cyber Traps for the Young, I discovered that there was this great community of people out in the world doing good work on cyber safety and online child safety and so forth. And we travel north across the border on this one to talk to Brandon Lauer, who's part of the White Hatter group up there that deals with cyber safety. Uh, he's been employed with Personal Protection Systems, which I would assume is the actual name of the organization, working as a White Hatter for over 12 years. Um, since May 2013, Brandon has been operating in a management position in the organization, overseeing special project developments, most recently developing the White Hatter production studio, which he gave us a nice tour of, and subsequent YouTube channel live stream, and webinar platforms. He has a master's degree in professional communication, specializing in phishing cyber attacks. We will be asking about that because that is the best degree I've heard of in a long time. Uh, Brandon actively facilitates educational programs designed for students of all ages, parents, teachers, and business professionals on the topics of privacy, security, digital literacy, and online digital intelligence gathering. Brandon's real world experience using social media and the Internet has played a major role in the growth of all Internet and social media safety programs offered by the White Hatter. And for those of you who may not be familiar with the term, White Hats are the folks who muck around and do intrusions into computer systems as the good guys in an attempt to help people understand what's going on. I will confess brandon that every time i see the phrase white hatter there's a part of my brain that goes to mad hatter so maybe you want to tie those two together but in any case welcome to the show
2: thank you for having me yeah sometimes we can be mad crazy but ultimately yeah we um we we truly love what we do why we do it and uh, how we do it and yes the white hatter is our Trademark, uh, the company is Personal Protection Systems, and we've been around now for, what, 27 years? And it's really in the last 12 years, I think now, that we've really focused on online cybersecurity, and that's where we kind of branded ourselves as the White Hatter. But actually, the name uh, comes from, and why we chose that name, is when we would be presenting at like schools, working with students and teaching them cyber safety skills, uh, we would wear uh, suits, ties, and these big white hats to kind of symbolize that we're white hat hackers. And you know, students, they love what we do. They love the outfit. They never remember our name though, but they always remember the white hat. And so the name naturally came from that. It was the students who couldn't remember our actual names but they remember the white hat and that was what was really important for us and that symbol has become pretty powerful in when we're talking with students and kind of building some rapport with them to teaching them how to stay safe because we are experienced white hatters both either social hacking or technical hacking and we kind of use the white hat symbol more of a, a broader sense of the definition you know anyone who helps protect someone on the internet is in essence a white hatter you know. Have to be a skilled coding hacker but there's a bunch of careers out there even here in canada i think we have a deficit i think right now of expert white hat hackers where we're outsourcing all of that work and there's a lot of good work to be had there and we share that with kids as well
1: that's really fantastic it it, it it's good of you to remind people of what a tremendous employment opportunity all of this stuff is because obviously the internet and technology is becoming an increasingly massive part of our lives so people are out there there's a need for people out there to make it safe in all of its manifestations so tell me a little bit more about the things that uh, your company does it sounds like you've got some organizational experience in terms of intrusion and cybersecurity at that level. But then do you did you shift to kids specifically, or do you still do both?
2: I would say we're our main focus and our main passion is with students that 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 is our passion. And I think that is really our specialty in in being able to help train students and teach them how to be proactive when it comes to their online digital safety and security. Uh, Yeah, we still do some corporate work here and there. Uh, It's not as popular. And we have other team members uh, who work in that field as well. Um, But we mostly focus within students working with parents as well, teaching parents how to stay safe, how to parent in a digital world, what are the challenges, but also what are the benefits? And I think what really makes us sometimes unique is we always try to bring a balanced approach because yeah there's challenges like everything else in the world but even though as online investigators and we're actually licensed now province of british columbia as an organization as a pi firm where we actually do investigations online we sometimes see some really bad stuff but honestly overwhelmingly we see way more good things then the bad things. And that's just human psychology and that we like to focus on the bad things. I mean, that's why we have clickbait nowadays, right? It's an unfortunate byproduct, but we really try to push against that and bring more of a balanced approach and solutions to challenges.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about that piece in particular, because it seems like there's a, an opportunity for kids to be pulled in a lot of different directions and to go down the wrong path. And so how do, you, how do you ensure that the ideas that you bring up don't encourage kids to go down the wrong path and not be one of the good guys on the Internet? Because it's pretty easy to get uh, caught up in that.
2: Oh, most certainly. And I think, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, education safety telling young people don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But, you know, overall, there's always going to be a small minority of young people who are just going to make poor decisions our job is to help minimize that number as much as possible there's going to there's, there's be some teens out there you say to them don't do something what are they going to do the next day and do it not all but there are some out there so you know for, for our perspective we take more of a here's the honest knowledge here's based on research experience logic here are potential outcomes doesn't guarantee it's going to happen good or bad but just so you know the information and we honestly leave it to young people to make their own choices we're not necessarily here to tell young people do this or don't do this we're going to give them just honest knowledge and that's what oftentimes builds rapport with the young people because they're far too often they're told do this don't do this don't do this and they're sick and tired of that and you know teens even they're pretty smart like like they have minds of their own yeah sure there's they're not fully developed yet but overall they overall make really good choices if you trust them and you give them the knowledge and we don't hold back i mean there's a reason why we get a lot of young people who message us on social media asking us questions uh, not because we're white hat security experts but it's because we're honest and we don't hold back anything if you want an answer We'll give you the answer based on experience, knowledge, logic, and all that stuff.
0: That approach is vital. One of my favorite quotes is we teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. And when you teach people the right things, then they can make their own decisions about what to do. And most people are going to choose to do the right kinds of things. And if you, if you say, don't do this, but don't give the real answers why, you don't tell them what is really going on when you go down that path then it because it's intriguing they'll want to go down that path every single day Uh, especially teenagers who want to rebel against what we're saying where if we just don't say like what they should do and we just say here's the information make your own choice most kids are going to make the right choice i couldn't agree with you more
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's nice to hear well In the realm of choices, Brandon, that kids are confronted with these days, you guys deal with a lot of schools, you deal with a lot of kids. What are the leading issues that kids are worried about online that parents should know about?
2: I would think the biggest challenges are one, privacy. That's a big challenge, but that itself is also such an overarching term. How do you drill down on that? But number one, I think it's privacy, and it's also uh, your digital footprint. I think is is one of the bigger challenges with today's young uh, folk because you know everything we do to some degree is being watched and tracked and recorded. Yes, you can have some privacy if you invest in the resources and such to build it that way, but it's hard to truly achieve i mean uh we make very clear with young people if you have at least one friend in any online private chat group it's no longer private right so i think that's one of our biggest focus points is privacy challenges with young people and then when looking at parents uh, the bigger challenges is um uh, juvenile which is essentially the um the over exaggeration of fear and hostility directed towards younger generations and you see that every generation there's always something that an older generation is typically afraid of because a younger generation is getting involved in something new but if you look throughout history young people throughout 1930s 40s 50s 60s there were challenges with media and technology but i would argue most young people they argue differently but most young people in those ages turned out just fine yeah there's a small portion that maybe made some poor choices that's always going to happen so i would say kids today with smartphones and media they're going to turn out just fine and when they're having kids of their own there's going to be another concern and they're going to look back on smartphones back in 2020 2021 and think, really, that was the concern back then? Because it's going to be something new. Um, So I think one of our big challenges for parents is kind of lowering the fear and lowering the anxiety. Not all the way to the bottom, so now parents are now ignorant to what kids are doing cuz that's not good either. But we want to bring more of a balanced approach and that's one of the challenges we try to get across to families is it's not as scary as maybe some clickbaity headlines tend to make them seem. Yeah, there's challenges. There are certainly challenges with like media overconsumption and that type of stuff and, you know, all all those choices that are either good or bad. But it's kind of bringing uh, a balance uh, to parents. And I think that's one of the bigger challenges we deal with
1: that makes a lot of sense I, i i agree with you given the work that i've done that that parents can overreact to different situations and that things that seem bad at the moment are not as life ending or life altering as they may think it will be that being said obviously there are times when because of the way society shifts we can't predict what's going to happen One of the things I don't know if you guys have seen much of it up there, probably not on the West Coast so much, but it's a big deal in New York right now that the young editor that was hired for Teen Vogue, a woman named Alexi McCammond, um, just resigned because she was getting um, so much blowback for tweets that she sent out or Facebook posts when she was 18 years old. So a decade ago, she deleted all of them and apologized in 2019 but they resurfaced when she got this new job. And now she's had to resign because of the cor- the pressure on the corporation. I'm not sure what the answer to that is because it's hard to imagine her handling that situation better, right? Than to say, yes, I sent them, I was 18 years old. It was a mistake, I've deleted them. I'm trying to demonstrate I'm a different person. But you know, this is the kind of thing I think that really worries a lot of parents is that something their kid has done that's part of their digital footprint, will linger.
2: Totally. And And like I said, that's one of the bigger challenges. I mean, that's why at older ages, we're kind of shifting our perspective. Yeah, we also offer safety programs for older ages, like late high school, but we're also offering programs now to teach young people how to leverage technology to their benefit. Because when we find with like grades 11 and 12, they generally have a good idea of what's right what's wrong and if they're going to do wrong things they already know the consequences for that so we kind of now focus more on you have social media you're pretty you're like an adult now like you're you're, you're going to go in the workforce let's help you leverage technology and if there is something maybe unsavory out there you want to not have people see how do you get rid of it or how do you bury it so it makes it harder for like employers of the future or other individuals to come across that content and there's never any guarantee to delete something but there are strategies and techniques you can use to make sure you show the best side of yourself and there's you know there's always a risk of something bad resurfacing but how do you kind of control that based on your reputation
0: yeah so give us some of those examples of how you how you control that i mean this situation with this young woman is very public right now and it's unfortunate but um, but how how do you control your reputation like that and and bury things so that they're they're not there and maybe deleting is one thing but some sometimes you know once it's out there you can't delete it forever right because somebody else has a copy somewhere. So what's your advice there?
2: First off, we never guarantee anything will truly be deleted. You can follow our steps, you can follow our protocol, but there's never any guarantee. But you can help manage it. Like number one, to make sure, you know, you kind of play on human psychology in a way, because you know, if you're getting your first time job, you know, most people may look at maybe the first or second page of Google. Never the third page. Who does that anymore? No one does that anymore. So, you know, how do you own the first page of Google, right? So one of the ways is like making sure you may not want to be on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, but squat on your name there. Get your handle with your name there. So when someone does search you up, you don't have to necessarily be posting things on those platforms, but we recommend maybe a couple great things. I mean, we met, um, a soccer player uh, at a high school who was, you know, an average level soccer player. And they weren't really getting scholarships, but they and their father decided to build a website out of uh, WordPress, which is super cheap to do. And after they built this website and their father was taking videos of them uh, doing practice, after they made that website, they started getting scholarship opportunities, which never happened prior to that website. So that's one way. I mean, if a family has the resources available, again, it's, it's not free, but getting a website in your child's name, I know there's a trend right now with uh, brand new parents, will they will pick a child's name based on availability of social media handles and websites and when they choose a child's name they will buy a domain name squat on a twitter name instagram name so if gmail, that child becomes someone <laughs> gmail yes so if they become older and maybe they're becoming a public figure they have that um positions uh, already uh confirmed because even today we're finding a hard time for even companies brand new companies how do they market themselves online when almost every small four-letter letter handle is taken. What do you do? It's, it's, I think that's a challenge for social media in the future is how do you make these handles available? But we're not there yet, but we're well, getting there.
1: If you don't mind, Brandon, let me jump in because I actually have a chapter on precisely that in Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. And one of the things I discovered when I was researching that is that parents go in two distinct directions. They want to have a name that pops their kid to the top of the Google search because they expect their kid to do great things and they want him or her there or They're more pessimistic about how their kid is going to turn out. And they want the most generic name possible. So the kid is automatically 4,000 pages deep in Google. So it's interesting. And one last anecdote, which at some point I'll get around updating that book. I just ran across an amazing story of a Swiss Wi-Fi company that ran a contest to get a family to name a child after the company in exchange for 18 years of free
0: Wi-Fi
2: service. I've and seen a couple of those campaigns myself. yeah, un- Unbelievable <laughs> stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, I will admit I do have domain names for all my kids already. I don't have a domain name for my wife, but I do for all my kids.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I did do Gmail. And actually, I will tell parents out there that when my kids were going through high school, they gave me such grief for having gotten their Gmail names when they were born. And now they're in their mid to late twenties. They're thrilled that they have, cause you know, it's, it's a nice, well-defined name for them. And they might not have had it if they had waited 25
2: years. I'm interested in like in the future, like 50 years from now, what's it going to look like? Like when, when, when all these handles get even more taken, It's going to be an interesting challenge. I think social media has to figure out, you know, as people maybe, uh, you know, pass away, what happens to the old hand? Like, there's a lot of interesting challenges in the early days. Yeah, get a Twitter handle in your name. Easy, done. Nowadays, it's like Brandon lore 572.
1: And actually, Brandon, I've thought about that in the sense that, you know, God, how long ago did I register fredericklane.com? It must be by now probably 25 years at a minimum and you know your your point is exactly right it's almost a moral question what do i do with it when i die do i retain through some bequest <laughs> control of the domain name or do i let it go into the universe and let somebody else get it it's an interesting question
0: yeah i'm passing mine down to my kids cuz they better name one of their kids jethro i mean come on that's a great name so <laughs> Let's do it. Anyway, let's move on to other things. Um, One of the things that you uh, have talked about and that we've talked about on this podcast are ways that kids can get into trouble, like sexting, for example. How do you talk to families uh, and kids in schools about sexting? What challenges there are, the, the research about that, all that?
2: yeah totally uh so it's always age dependent depending on which grade we're talking to obviously grade four or five students get a very different discussion compared to the teenagers and you know, it also really depends on where you physically are located because there's a lot of different places around the world who are changing their laws based off of the behavior we see occurring um i mean i think it was maryland i think uh, One one of your states just recently are passing legislation to kind of uh, make it less of a serious offense for young people who are caught in the behavior. I know Washington state, which is my neighbor to the south, has very similar laws to what we have here in um, Canada. So in Canada, we have one law that applies across our country. U.S. is a little different. <laughs> I, and but I can it, it, I can jump in on
1: that real quickly, Brandon, because this is an area that I've worked on some. What you're referring to down in the states are what are called Romeo and Juliet laws, which basically give the participants, if they're within a certain age range, basically usually a one shot pass. Right. So they get caught sexting, they go into some kind of educational program, and there's no record. And the thing is that only about 17 of our 50 states actually have that. The rest actually still have straight-up child pornography laws, which is what it is under U.S. law.
2: Yeah, and, yeah, and thankfully there's, um, in Canada, for example, uh, yes, we have a, a child pornography law, but our Supreme Court back in 2001, which is what, now 20 years ago? Oh, boy. Um, Back in 2001, uh, they made a legislation, uh, a a landmark decision. And they said, you know, the, the child pornography law was never designed to prevent young people who are sexually mature from engaging with each other. It was designed to prevent predators from prying on young people. So in Canada, the Supreme Court in 2001 made a what they call a private use exception to the law. And basically it says, is in, in general, here's what it says, uh, two teens in a consenting legal relationship, ages of consent are met and there's no exploitation, no threats of violence, not illegal. As long as those pictures remain within the privacy of that relationship, if say a, a partner of a teen who they're dating takes the picture, sends it or shares it with anyone else, okay yeah now that definitely breaks the law and there's big consequences for that because again even teens here in canada have rights just as full-grown adults Uh, and we're seeing a lot more states now having these discussions and i think uh, the closest example is washington state which back in 2019 or 18 uh, changed their revised code to be very similar to what we do here in canada some differences, uh, but it's very similar. Um, so it's interesting to see that happening across uh, North America. Now, as for the challenges with sexting, obviously, you know, any image you you take of yourself in a private place or not is there's always a risk of it being distributed, uh, lost. If you have a picture on your phone, I don't care what it is, but you want no one else to see it. Maybe you lose your phone, you misplace your phone, someone steals your phone. Less likely someone hacks into a phone. What if you, you your photos on your phone automatically get backed up into the cloud? Now that thing you want no one to see is saved on your laptop to back it up, or maybe on the cloud, or on a server somewhere you don't control. So there's, there is there is risk. There is risk, but at the same time, there there are some legal challenges there for a young person's rights to engage in the behavior. So these, these are interesting challenges we find ourselves in. And when we talk with high schoolers, it's not as if we say to them, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it again it's the same philosophy of here's what the law says here are the potential outcomes here are the challenges make your own choices but understand the the positive or negative consequences for those choices
1: that's a good way to put it because the issue that you know you need to help kids understand is they may consider someone getting a hold of these images to be a worst-case scenario But there's a non-trivial chance that the worst case scenario will occur. So they just need to be prepared if that happens. Some kids may not care, but others may find it very psychologically challenging to have that private image out there.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why young people have reached out to us on social media. Now, we're not a 24-7 helpline. We're a small team. We're not government funded. Kind of cool if we were. Imagine the things we could do with that. But I mean, we're a small team, and we're we do the best we can. And we have a lot of young people who reach out, ask us for guidance and help. And I think we've now been intervol- in, uh, been involved in over a hundred and no two hundred and eleven now interventions where young people have reached out to us because they found themselves in potentially a significant mental wellness challenge either dealing with suicidal ideation or something around that matter. And about a third of those cases have been a uh, a nude image uh, being released, gone wrong situation. So it kind of gives some, some insight to that. And on that note, as a researcher, one of my research uh, specialties is actually in the field of sexting. I think today I've now reviewed and analyzed over 250 research projects, peer reviewed, on this very behavior. And what's really interesting is when i work with parents and i say the word sexting what's the first thing that comes to mind naked pictures naked pictures however when you're actually looking at the research that a lot of news articles are referencing a lot of research defines sexting both in academic and in industry define sexting as nude only images semi-nude images like a bathing suit picture and sometimes some research defines sexting as sexualized text messages. Now, what in the world is a sexualized text message? (laughs) Exactly. So there there is headlines saying that one in four teens are sexting. Yeah, if you define it in that broad sense. Most research, it refers to sexting as nude and semi-nude now semi-nudes there's some risks there but from a legal standpoint in most places and a safety standpoint there are some differences of actual nude only images the research is light on that because as researchers we want to get published and all that stuff it's closer to like five to seven percent of young people uh engaging that behavior anything more than that it's usually talking about semi-nude images which are different in many cases
1: Now, that's interesting. Well, a couple of quick points for you. For starters, Canada can claim credit for coming up with the term sexting. You may have run across this, but there was a Globe and Mail article back in 2004 in which the reporter was talking about a David Beckham controversy where he was flirting by text with somebody. And the writer used the term sexting to describe what he was doing, which I I love word origin, so you can put that in a file somewhere. But the other thing is that I wanted to mention is that um, a couple of our guests, but one in particular, uh, Dr. Jeff Temple from the University of Texas Medical Branch has done extensive research in sexting among high school students. And I will put him in touch with you because I think you guys definitely would have some things to talk about.
2: Yeah, most, yeah, totally. It, it's a very interesting field. And, you know, sexting, number one, is a boomer term, <laughs> right? The kids don't use that term. If you use that word with young people, guess what? They're going to blow you off. They're like, like, what are you talking about? Right? They use words like nudes and the, like, which is actually, I prefer that word versus sexting because a nude clearly describes what is actually occurring. What does sexting mean? overall, it's a huge, broad term. And when you get a, a group of young people down, you ask them to like, do a survey and you ask them, have you have you been sexting a message, a video, semi nude or fully nude? Well, that number is going to be inflated a lot. So um, that's some interesting um, anecdotes there. And about you know, 98, 95% of all sexting occurrences mostly happen with already pre-established intimate romantic relationships. And yeah, sure, rando strangers still do occur, but that's actually quite a small percentage. It's most often with people who are dating each other, generally is what we see and what the research has also been showing as well. So is
0: there... If my kids are not involved in a romantic relationship with anyone, do I need to be worried about sexting?
2: You still do. I mean, there, there still is, the the, the poss- anything's possible, right? You know, maybe there's a rando predator on the internet. Now, again, that, that's a lot of time where a lot of people focus on, where, yeah, they exist. They're not everywhere. And I think we oftentimes focus on that fact. We see more exploitation happening f- within peers, where it's not necessarily, you know, maybe a friend wants to pull a prank Crime, Um, or or an ex-romantic partner has an image and they're jilted, they want to embarrass them. Um, So we see a lot more exploitation with images, more so from peers rather than rando strangers on the internet. Now again, those cases do exist and that's what generally gets the headlines and that's what we all focus on. But again, it's actually the probability of a young person coming in contact with that person if that young person is making good online choices, pretty small. Now, making poor choices, there is a higher level of risk.
0: Well, and I think that that's where, you know, we talk about the, the rando person online because that's the boogeyman. That's the big scary thing that everybody's afraid of that can come into your life and and totally disrupt it. And we don't pay attention enough to the relationships that our kids have with their peers. And I'll just share this quick story as As a principal, I was going to have a young woman come and babysit my kids when they were young, and she was tangentially involved in a situation with cyberbullying. She wasn't the perpetrator. She wasn't the victim, but she was on the text thread, basically, is what happened. And as I was reviewing the evidence about this situation with the girls who were involved, I saw the things that she was saying in this text thread, and I was just, I was blown away. And I thought, man, I don't feel comfortable now having this girl who I thought was one way uh, coming into my home and being around my kids uh, when she's talking about things, how she was talking about them there. And I never told her about this or approached her about it. And I dealt with it in the school situation. But as a parent, I was shocked at what I saw there. And I think that that's an area where the conversations with our kids, knowing what they're texting, really... um, uh, allows us to have conversations about what's appropriate and what's not. And then again, continue to allow them to make their choices. Because guess what? They're going to make their choices anyway.
2: Most definitely. And that's one of the challenges in our modern era, right? Because, you know, you know, young people decades ago, you know, there there was language being used that a parent would find unsavory. Decades ago, those those conversations face-to-face weren't saved and were recorded. Um, and I mean... But nowadays they are, and there's now a risk of that being leaked. So generally, I think the behavior of young people today is generally the same. It's just that there's a lot more spotlight on it because of this tracking and recording. So, and that that's a challenge, right? And I wish I had a foolproof solution. I don't, and like I said before, there's always going to be a small portion of young people who are going to make some poor choices, despite how hard you say, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Some won't, we say that, but some will not listen. And so again, it's giving them knowledge and letting them make those choices for themselves and then understand the potential consequences.
1: In terms of the work that you do with schools, how do you navigate some of the parental concerns about what kids are being taught. Sex education is such a perfect example. And maybe Canada is more progressive than the United States is on that subject, which honestly wouldn't be all that difficult. But do you ever get pushback from you know, parents or even educators themselves about the kinds of things that need to be presented to kids so that they understand what they're doing?
2: Sometimes it depends on where on where we travel to, or at least nowadays, now where where do we broadcast to? Because now everything's virtual, which honestly I'm really loving virtual based presentations because you can do things virtually you can't do face to face, like sound effects and green screens. It's a lot of fun if you know how to do it. But uh, yeah, well, there's pushback. There certainly is sometimes, and. Uh, yeah, we've had some presentations across North America and some places that are maybe a little more uh, reserved around sexual discussions. And yeah, there's pushback. But we always side on the fact of we're not saying do it or don't do it. What we're saying is here's the facts. Here's what the law says. There's no arguing with what the law says. Like that's just what it says. And we're just conveying that. But a lot of people like to, to say, well, if you tell a young person and discuss Sexting, for example, it's going to cause them to then go ahead and do it anyways. Well, overall, the concept of sexting or sending nudes is more so what we focus on. Um, young people already have that concept in their mind, either because of what they see in a mainstream media, social media, the school community, or their own friend groups having sexual based discussions, and then the idea of taking a picture pops into the discussion. So young people already have the concept in their mind, even at young ages. I mean, we've been involved as investigators in the case as early as grade four, where sexting was going on. And makes sense. Because when I would travel across North America, when I would talk to grade four or five students, I would, about, you know, that was back in 2019, about 40% of my audiences would have a smartphone in grade four, or five, at six, seven, that was more like 70, 80%. So there is a possibility. Yes, there is. But the concept's already there. So it's not as if we say do it or don't do it. It's just here's the facts. Make your own choices. And if your family has a different p- plan or preference, that we open it up for families to have those discussions among themselves. We don't get involved in that. We just say, here's the information. Do with it what you will.
1: Well, let me just, uh, before Jethro takes up towards the end of the podcast. Let me just bring in one more concept that you alluded to, which is the slide of increasingly powerful devices into lower grades. And I think you're absolutely right in terms of presenting information to kids so that they can make informed decisions. But do you feel like we're getting to a, a place where kids are getting these devices before we can really give them the information they need. That is to say, the devices are more powerful than what people are comfortable talking to
2: them about. I don't that's a great question. I don't actually know because the challenges we find with families and I'm not here to (laughs) bash families, but you know, sometimes it's it's sometimes in our experience, it's families who may be using powerful devices, not as a tool, but more as a pacifier where, you know, back when I was traveling, uh, I visit towns, go to a restaurant, family, young child misbehaving first thing parent does, pulls out the phone, turns on YouTube, Netflix again, gives it to the child and they are pacified. They are quiet. They are angels. And, you know, looking at that, is that how the world works? No. You go to grade school, you misbehave. You're getting a phone to play with? No. You get a job and you play, you're you misbehaving. You get a toy to play with? No. That's just not how it works. And I think a challenge, I mean, one of one of the quotes we like to say in the White Hatter is, you know, be your child's best parent and not their best friend. There is a difference, right? And too many families want to kind of be the best friend nowadays versus the best parent, and you know that's a challenge we face with parent groups because not everyone wants to hear that message because it sounds like that we're blaming parents. We're not. It's a, it's more complex than that. There's societal, technological, legal, political challenges all wrapped into one. But if we just think root technology, it's going to fix everything. No, that's not how it works. But we like to focus on technology because, as you said, it's kind of like the boogeyman, right? So um, those are the challenges we face, and, and that's kind of how we, we we like to address it. And if we do it right, and we think we do, using statistics, facts, science, logic, and our investigative experience, we kind of address these challenges from five different fronts, and hopefully, one of those methods will resonate with a parent, a student, or a teacher, and they'll make some changes.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a great place to end, Brandon. Thank you so much for, for being here. Really fascinating discussions, and I'm glad that you took the time to share it with our audience today. Thank you for having me.
1: That wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, white hat hacking, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the
0: risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones, Fred is at Cybertraps, and you can also follow at White Hatter Team. If you're still listening, you must have enjoyed the podcast, so please leave us a five-star rating review in your podcast service. And we appreciate having you with us today and look forward to having you join us on Monday for our live show.